You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Joining us now on the Hazard Ground Podcast, another first since we have two guests on this week's episode. They are the founders of Combat Flip Flops. Before they started that business, they were both Rangers in Afghanistan uh, and with the 75th Ranger Regiment, and these guys are fantastic Americans. They're fantastic individuals, and their company, Combat Flip Flops, something we'll talk in detail about coming up. But I wanted to introduce on the Hazard Ground podcast Matthew Griffin and Donald Lee. Matt, Don, thank you guys for being here. Thanks for having us on the show. Thanks for having us. All right, so let's start with Matt. Uh, how did you get your start in the military? Where did it begin? Uh, my, I'm an army brat and my dad was in the army, retired 20 years. And, uh, I'd been around military guys my entire life. I thought they were you know, the coolest thing. All I wanted to do when I grew up was to be an airborne ranger and, uh, and ended up going to West Point, uh, in 97, graduated in 2001 and found my way into the army, into the big green machine that way. When you, Matt, when you were going through all of West Point, you know, uh, the world was a different place. You graduated in 2001, so this is all prior to 9-11. Where were you on 9-11 when it happened? Uh, I was in my officer basic course. Okay. Uh, I was actually dating a girl in New York City at the time, and I, was, I remember sitting there in, in fire support class, and my instructor walks in and says, hey, guys, I got some bad news. The clip's on the TV, and we were watching the, the second plane crash into the towers uh, right when that happened, and it was it was a surreal moment when you know we knew we were going to war. So we went from fighting the Cortinians and all these fake wars of JRTC and NTC to having to train for a real world mission. Donald, what about you? Where was your start in the military? Uh, wow. Um, so um, joining the military, I, I actually went to uh, I went to college before I joined the military. I was I went to design school, and um, the military was kind of the farthest thing from my mind um, it's something i wanted to do when i was younger but um i was kind of past that point but after 9 11 um the you know the recruiting offices closed for a couple days as soon as they reopened um i went and enlisted with an army ranger contract um right after 9 11 uh, that's that's kind of how that happened <laughs> so it was pure patriotism at that point yes sir well, I mean, it's kind of interesting when you put the two of you side by side. You know, Donald, as you just told the story, that 9-11 was the impetus for you joining. Uh, and Matt, you kind of always saw yourself as an Army guy. I mean, when when you guys share stories about that whole deal and how you, your paths ended up converging, uh, I mean, do you think it ever happens if 9-11 doesn't happen? Yeah, yeah, I never really thought about it, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that we would have found each other through some crazy endeavor at some point in time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> crazy fun crazy all right so let's start with matt again you know 9-11 happens and and you realize you're going to war um what were you thinking and feeling at that point in time oh uh, yeah I, I think i felt very similar to you know majority of u.s service members that you know, hey we're going to go and I, I was really focused at the time of being a really good platoon leader fire support officer uh making sure that if i was going to go to combat i was responsible for the lives of 30 plus uh, men and their, you know, their families and go bringing them home and deploying them safely and bringing them back and just really focused. Like I really wanted to get the best out of my training. Um, yeah, I, I, I knew I wanted to go to the Ranger regiment. And so I did pre-Ranger all through officer basic course. 
on right to ranger school, uh, picked my first post at Fort Lewis, knowing that they had a ranger battalion there. I went to, um, you know, went to my first battalion commander and said, Hey, sir, like I'm going to come here. I'm going to do a stellar job for you. But my intent is to go to the ranger battalion. And I, you know, I did everything I, that I possibly could uh, to kind of step forward and put in my pocket and in a conventional unit for nine months that never deployed, uh, they were getting ready to go to Iraq. But my, my, again, my intent was to go to ranger battalion. And that was, July of 2003 is when I went through rope. Uh, and that's where I met Lee in August of 2003 in the, in the team room. All right. Well, second Ranger Battalion. That, that's kind of interesting because, and for those listening, a fire support officer is an artillery guy, and artillery is just responsible for, you know, for lack of a better term, lobbing those uh, large rounds of munition at the enemy uh, to protect the guys on the ground. Um, going to the Ranger Regiment, you know, and that, that's that's something where you self-select. I mean, it's not like that. that is a conscious choice to make, and we've had other guys from the regiment on, and you're talking about one of the most elite fighting units in all of the world. Uh, how did you know that that was something you always wanted to do? Uh, I remember being at West Point and they, you know, this is back before the war. So, you know, the units could do really cool display of force demonstrations. And it was a, it was a Thursday night before the army Navy game, my freshman year. And, you know, they did this mock display where the Navy guys captured the army mule and the Rangers were going to come in and do a hostage rescue. And they you know, brought them out in the field. We're all standing around the field. And I, this is the first time I'd ever witnessed anything like this. And out of nowhere, this 53 comes in and it is spitting fire from four mini guns. And all of a sudden a rope falls out of the back and it's pooping hate and discontent guys sliding <laughs> down a rope, you know, they hit the ground to run in. And like, just when I think it couldn't get any cooler, these R sobs, that was back when the Rangers had uh, the Range Rovers and they look like porcupines with so many guns on them. And this Range Rover comes firing out of the woods, hits a curb, jumps in the air and the, the vehicle commander was on the machine gun. And he was firing the machine gun, but when they took the bounce, he started falling out of the vehicle, and he had perfect trigger manipulation, like let go before he, you know, his field of fire got dangerous, bounced out of the car, rolled out of the way before the rear wheels could roll over him, got up running, and before he took his second step, he was already firing out of his, uh, out of his rifle. Wow. And I just thought to myself, I really want to go work with those guys. Um, and, th- and that was really my introduction into the Ranger Regiment where I said, you know, those are real professionals, they're doing real work, and that's where I want to go. And then I, uh, you know, being an artillery guy, good at math, I had some really good mentors who had come out of the Ranger Regiment uh, throughout my junior military career. And when I was an officer basic course, the regimental fire support officer, Major Flynn, had just left that position to go teach at the school. And he brought us under his wing and he says, hey, guys, if you want to go play with the big boys now, you want to use all the cool tools, you need to go be a ranger fire support officer. And he showed us the slideshows of the little birds and the jets and all the mortars and all the cool stuff that we get to work with. And, you know, as a young 22-year-old wannabe ranger, I mean, that, that was it. I was sold. <laughs> yeah, that well, was it. for the record, you're the first person to use the phrase pooping hate and discontent on the Hazard Ground podcast. And uh, we, we appreciate that. That was well <laughs> said. Uh, Don, you know, you, you guys met in the ranger regiment. You signed up for the ranger contract. I mean, it's one thing to just be a ranger, which is tough enough. But again, to select the ranger regiment to go after that is something that's a whole different different ball of wax. Why did you choose it? Uh, to be honest, I wanted to go fight with the best. Um, you know, I realized that, you know, when, when I thought about it, when I thought about everything when I was enlisting, I, I thought like, you know, not not I'm I'm not knocking conventional army or anything like that. But I realized at the time. Um, my thinking was that there was a lot of guys that had joined the military for, for college money. 
And, you know, there was no war going on. They, you know, nobody really expected this to kick off. So, you know, I realized, like, hey, I really want to go fight with the best. I want to train with the best. You know, I, I, I want to go do that and, and, and be on the ground with guys that, that are there to win. I mean, you know, meat eaters that are just there to absolutely just take it to the bad guys and, and come out ahead. Um, I wanted to be with that. I wanted to serve with those guys, and I want to fight alongside those guys. So that, that's really why I went. I enlisted with an option 40 contract. Was the Ranger re- Regiment everything you guys thought it would be? Matt, you first. Yeah, that and then some. Yeah, it, it, it was everything you would you would imagine it to be, and then a whole lot more. Don. Yeah, I, I have to agree with I have to agree with with, uh, with Griff. It was it was everything that I, I expected it to be, and then some. All right, so you guys get to the Ranger Regiment. Uh, how did the first initial introduction between the two of you end up happening? Uh, you know, it was kind of a an interesting experience because they had literally just gotten back from the Iraq invasion, and Lee was Bird One, Chalk One, you know, in the Baghdad International Airport, and here I am, this cherry lieutenant with no combat patch, and everybody, including the new privates, are coming back with scrolls and stereo, and so it was just a really, really interesting dynamic, and. I don't know how long it was, but uh, they, they filled everything that I owned because I left a, a lock undone on the on my on my wall locker, and every pocket and jacket and kind of thing I could I, you could potentially shove something into mine had gay porn shoved oh. all the way through it, oh, and that's that's God. really kind of what started our relationship. Yeah, wallets, patches, stickers, everything like everywhere. Um, rookie mistake, huh? Our relationship. It was, yeah, it was a rookie mistake <laughs> where the privates are giving the LT a hard time and. And it was just fun. I mean, you, you had to understand where you were at, and it was just kind of the thing when you, you're the non-combat bat and you're the cherry lieutenant, you're just going to take a ribbing. And I just focused on doing my job well, and, and they just focused on doing their job well, and we had a lot of fun in the process. Now, just chronologically, Donald, real quick, <laughs> you actually deployed before Matt did? So you, you had went to Iraq before Matt had ever? Yeah. Got, okay, go ahead. Yes, sir. I, I, uh, I deployed uh, to Iraq for the initial invasion invasion um so we were on that on that first uh on that first run into iraq now what was um, that like yeah like you said we got back and uh it was it was an invasion <laughs> um it was it was just i mean i don't know how to, i i really i don't know i couldn't explain it it was um you know a lot of hurry up and wait i guess um a lot of sand <laughs> um i don't know it, it, it was, i guess it was just an invasion i really can't i really can't describe that deployment it was uh there was a lot of hurry up and wait. There was a lot of, uh, I don't even, I, I really couldn't, I really can't put in words. I can't explain um, what that deployment was like. Well, let's let's try it from this angle. Yeah. You, you signed up after 9-11 to go fight a war mm-hmm. uh, and, and go defend America. Was that sense of patriotism still the same feeling as you're flying into Baghdad? You know what? I was, I had... A lot of the guys that were that were at, at the time before I got there, they had deployed to Afghanistan um, after 9/11, and this was Iraq was my first deployment. So I was, you know, I was I was super green and I was super excited just just to go out and and, and kind of prove myself and and uh, and earn that combat patch. Um, I mean, that, it sounds really stupid, but that's that's kind of what I was. Uh, that that was my thing. I was I was pretty hyped that it was my first deployment, and, and I was pretty excited about it. Um, but yeah, I mean. I guess when you're a new guy and everybody else has been been on on a combat deployment, you, you kind of want to go out and, and say, hey, I can do this with you guys. And especially at the Ranger Regiment, where you're constantly having to uphold the standard and, and, and always prove yourself. Um, that was 
for me that was you know important in the beginning. Did you feel like you had accomplished everything that was set out during the initial invasion? I mean, was was obviously was mission accomplished from a tactical standpoint, but uh, was it one of those things where when you got back, you had a sense of pride? Yeah, I mean, again, like like I said, I was I was stoked that I got to deploy and that and that uh, you know I, I went out with the boys and I, I did everything that was asked of me and you know I came back you know I, I came back home at one piece. So yeah, I, it was there was definitely a sense of pride. Um, but I, I mean, to be honest, when, when, when we were in Iraq, I just, I really, I, I really was thinking like, you know, I want to go to Afghanistan. You know, we hadn't finished one deployment and I, and I, I can, I can wait to get to, to the next country. Um, because my mindset was, you know, the bad guys that, that came and, and, and hit us in New York were in Afghanistan. And that's, that's really what I, where I wanted to go. Yeah, a lot of guys have, have echoed that sentiment along the way, uh, as far as, you know, hey, what are we kind of doing in Iraq? Like this whole thing was because of Afghanistan, and we're sitting here, you know, five six countries away, uh, it, it, doing something totally different. Did that ever bother you? Um, no, it wasn't. Again, again, when when you get to the Ranger Regiment and and you haven't deployed, you, you just you know, again, you're constantly proving yourself. I'll just I'll fall back to that, right? You know, I wanted to go, and and I guess it. it the first deployment really didn't matter to me as you know where it was i just i wanted to, to deploy get the experience and, and you know be able to do whatever was asked of me so the, the initial one wasn't i don't want to say it wasn't important to me but as that one was coming to a close um, you know th- that's when my, my mind started being set on afghanistan all right matt so you are waiting for your first deployment to show up uh all jokes aside and everything else do you remember your first interaction with lee and and how did that go oh it was great i mean he was a, a new private and it was funny because you know lee's lee's situation was kind of different because he signed up for a really short contract you know under you know the patriotic act and so when he got there he what they weren't going to waste a spot sending him to ranger school because they knew that by the time that he got done with ranger school his essentially his contract was going to be over and he was going to go back to his civilian life in la so he got in this really weird position of being really good at his job knowing that he wasn't going to be in a position of responsibility and he's kind of like this weird floater and it doesn't happen very much in ranger battalion but he managed to pull that role off and uh, the way that i described him, he is the perpetual naysayer so he could almost get away with like, no, LP, that's a stupid idea. That's dumb. You shouldn't do that. And that's how our relationship started was, you know, not being scared, not being afraid. He was older. Uh, so he was you know, typically his own man. He wasn't a 19-year-old scared private. He was 24, 25 years old with a combat deployment underneath him and some experience. And I'd say something and he'd be like, no, it's stupid. You know, we shouldn't do that. And that's just what I remember of my first interactions with Lee is him really calling me LP <laughs> stupid and being able to get away with it. <laughs> Yeah. Did you did you call him stupid, Don? <laughs> Plenty of times. Yeah. Plenty of times. <laughs> he, he, he still does. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, both to your face it, and it, under it, his it, breath. You know, I'll be honest. That's that that uh, that that first interaction has set the tone for our entire relationship. Even now, um, you know, the way we run our business, we're very blunt with each other. The same way, uh, you know, there'll be there'll be times where 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 Griff is like, "We should do this, this, and this, and we should do this," and and I'll look and I'll be like, "Dude, that's fucking stupid." <laughs> you know, like, what are you doing? And and he gives it. I mean, he gives it as he gives it as well as he takes it, right? I mean, I could do the same thing. I'll be like, "Hey, we should do this," and they'll look at me and be like, mm, "Yeah, no, you're fucking stupid." <laughs> uh, so that that kind of sets its own for a relationship. Well, that being said, you guys are obviously you know arm in arm going forward into a deployment in Afghanistan. 
what were you both told prior to the deployment as far as your mission was and kind of what happened when you get there? Matt, go ahead. Yeah, we were told it was uh, it was a surge. It was the middle of the winter. It was a winter strike. It was the the effort to deny al-Qaeda fighters winter safe havens in these high-altitude villages, and we were going to you know, deny them the rest that they thought they were going to get over the winter. Um, it was going to be full-on ranger patrols, just like winter ranger school, and, and that was it. And so I, I didn't know what to expect uh, from the mountains or the terrain or the people in Afghanistan. I only want to heard from previous deployments, but I know as soon as I stepped off the back of a C-17 at Bagram and looked at those mountains, my, my whole world changed. Like those are, those are big hills. And the only word that I could use to describe them was violent. And, uh, we were going to be living in them for, for the next couple of months, which was a surreal experience. And Lee, from your standpoint, what, what did you, I mean, you were as a lower enlisted, what did you hear and what did you know? Uh, dude, um, Man, I just, I just know when we got ready to go on that deployment, it was going to suck. I mean, I mean, when, when, you know, we didn't know, we didn't know exactly too much about the missions before we hit them. But um, the way we prepped and the way we trained, we, we kind of knew it was going to be a suck test. What made it so sucky? I mean, obviously the weather was part of it. Was, was there anything else? It was altitude. I think, I think, uh, honestly, from, from a, from a physical standpoint. That was probably the most physically demanding uh, deployment that I did. I think that was it, and it was only a surge. I mean, it wasn't. You know, our, our next our next deployment to Afghanistan was longer, and and it was. I don't think it was. I think the fact it was cold and and the amount of, of mountains we had to walk up was just it was is what what made it super super shitty. Yeah, the uh, the challenges is you know. Most people, most of us haven't operated at altitude before, and they took a, you know, all all three ranger battalions are basically at sea level, and so they deployed us all at once and went from sea level to six to eight to ten thousand feet in under a week, um, with heavy loads in winter and unfamiliar terrain. And so a lot of guys, you're super in shape, and what you don't understand about operating at altitude is you're still in the same level of shape as you are at at sea level. But the oxygen just isn't there to support that. So what happens is you overexert yourself as if you're in at sea level, and then you, you deplete yourself of oxygen, and you can't recover. So I think the realization for most of us was, you know, sprint, get to the objective, you know, be the first one up the mountain, and then just having your tank drained and then not being able to recover. It was just something that took us a while to compensate for. And the whole time you're cold, wet, tired, hungry. It was, uh, it was the mixture of everything that made a, a good sucky deployment. You know, a, a lot of people we talked. We mentioned to, we were cold. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> a lot of people on the podcast talk about that suck and and how bad things are, kind of bringing everybody closer together. I assume that was the case for you guys as well. Yeah, that was. Yeah, I mean, you know, every time every time we deployed, and shit was just really bad. It seemed like the worse it was, the more fun it was to talk about after, you know, when we got back to, to the, to our battalion when we're sitting in the, in the company bar. I mean, that was it, right? We'd look at each other like, dude, that fucking sucks. Huh? Yeah. High five. Had me another beer. (laughs) (laughs) So when you leave that deployment, what's next for you guys? Um, I came back and my wife, uh, deployed to Iraq. Um, and then she found out that she was pregnant uh, like on route Irish in Iraq. So they sent her home. 
So we had that to deal with. So found out I was having my first child, and then we were immediately getting ready to to redeploy again uh, to Afghanistan. It's spring of '04, so that that one was next for me. And I think Lee was in the same boat. He had just had his first son, and hoping to get some time at home and in between everything else we were doing. Was the recovery time enough for you guys? I mean, given everything that was going on in your personal lives? The recovery time is never enough. I mean, I say that kind of sarcastically, right? Um, You know, we go out in between deployments. We're working really hard to get this done, to to, to stay in shape, to go do our jobs. Um, But you'll never say it's enough. You know, but you have plenty of time to recover. I, I, I think we did. You know, if you ask, I'll say, no, I need more. <laughs> so when you head out on that second deployment, um, what's different about it? Uh, how much harder was that mission? Was it easier? I mean, tell me about that one. Uh, you know, I think uh, that one was, uh, we had worked in the Kunar province in the, you know, December deployment, the previous deployment, the first deployment together. And the next one was down near Cal Salerno area. So down, down near the PAC border. And we were you know, trying to intercept Al-Qaeda fighters and, and, fundamentalist groups infiltrating over from Pakistan. Uh, so we spent a lot of time in the mountains um, up in these valleys, you know, back and forth on the border down in that region. And I think the previous deployment had prepared us for what we were going to face and see in the mountains and, you know, and for the cold and being able to handle the weather as well. So we operated still pretty remotely, uh, but I think everybody was more prepared for it on this trip. Would you say that the fighting in the, I know you described the mountains as violent before, would you say that the fighting was better, worse, the same? What was the conditions there? Lee, you were involved in it more than I was. I'll let you take this one. I think it was, you know, we actually, we operated, you know, there was, there was only, <clears throat> there was only a few weeks where we were, we were kind of out really outside of the wire, if I recall it correctly. Um, we were fortunate enough to stage out of uh, out of out of uh, coast out of Salerno for for a decent amount of time. So that actually made it, you know, made it made it a lot. I, I don't want to say comfortable because comfortable is kind of a relative term, but um, it made it more bearable. I guess you'd say because you know you're, you you have a, a cod, but um, um, we spent some time there, which made which made the deployment a little bit better, but. You know, for for a few weeks we were actually out, you know, beating the bush, and I think uh, I think just knowing that we we'd be able to get back to Salerno was was a little bit more comforting than than um, than just sucking and freezing out um, outside the wire the whole deployment. When you guys have a relationship the way you guys do and deploy, and you know, Matt, you just said that that Lee was more involved in the combat. Did you worry about him more than anybody else? No, I mean I had you know. Six guys. Um, most times, they were operating remotely. Uh, to be honest, Lee was the one I worried least about. Uh, he had it. He was good. He had a great platoon leader. They had a great working relationship. And when it came down to do business, he was always calm under pressure and did good work. So I didn't. I would say I worried about him the least. Lee, did you know he had that kind of confidence in you? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you did call him yeah, stupid. Yeah, several I mean, times. honestly, look, I think, I think, I think that that confidence. I honestly think that confidence came from um, the fact that I was. I think I was the oldest dude on the team. Well, no, actually, there was one guy that was older than me. That was just he had been in prior service in some 
at some other unit, but um, I think I was I was the oldest on the team until after that deployment. So um, most of the guys that we worked with, most of, of, of the other guys Griff was in charge of, even even the NCOs um, on our fist on our fist team, um, I was older than all of my. I was I'm older than Griff too. So when we were out there, I had I was a little bit more mature <laughs> than uh, than than the younger dudes. So you know, I went. I understood why I was there. I knew why I had enlisted, and I just I wanted to go and do my job well, help my guys when they needed help, fight hard. So, you know, I, it's I, I think it's just a maturity thing. It's it's not so much that the younger dudes can't do the job, couldn't do the job as well as I was able to. It was just my mind was in a different place. When you look back on these first two deployments, you know they were tough for different reasons. What stands out about them to you? Oof. <laughs> um. I think when we started having guys get hit and losing dudes, you know, that's when shit gets real. Like when somebody gets shot or somebody gets killed, that's, that's when thing really, when, when shit gets real, you know, Iraq was my first deployment and, and I was stoked. Like I just wanted to go out there and, 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 you know, I hate to say it, but just go and prove myself to the guys I'm fighting next to, because they, you know, most of the dudes had already deployed to Afghanistan in, in um, like 2001, 2001, 2002. Um, so, um, you know, I, I was, me personally, I was just anxious to get out there and, and be able to do my job and, and perform and, and, you know, and again, prove myself. Um, you know, when you start hearing like, oh, you know, so-and-so got hit or, oh, so-and-so got killed. And that's, that's when things start changing between deployments. You know, you can, you can feel one, you, you feel one way. Like, um, <clears throat> my last deployment, you know, I was. I would save every piece of, you know, every packet of charms and every beverage base. I would give it you know, all my pens and papers and give it to the kids. And, um, you know, we, we lose a guy and, and I'm just like, and I hate saying that, you know, you, you get very angry and you feel a certain way and, and your whole demeanor changes. Um, yeah. Lee, how did you feel about losing guys? Um, fucking suck. I mean, it's, when you lose a guy and you hear that a guy, I mean, is it different when you're in the actual engagement and a guy gets hit as opposed to hearing that on another engagement a guy gets hit? Well, no, I mean, when I was, when I was talking about it, it was, you know, guys, guys from, from a code 275, like, okay. Our, you know, our company, you know, one of, one of, one of our platoons, um, you know, you hear that or, or, you know, even, 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 you know, like the first guy we lost, the first guy, that we lost on my first deployment was, was Jay Blessing and Blessing got IED. Um, you know, it was, it was called Bob Charlie and then they named it Bob Blessing after Blessing got killed. Um, you know, we had, just, we had, you know, we had just drove that route. You know, we, we established comms. We're hearing them come our way and then, and then Blessing gets killed. Um, so, you know, all this stuff, there, there are guys and, and I guess, yeah, I guess hearing your guys coming to you and, and, and getting, getting killed it, it is a lot different from being in the engagement and losing a guy um i don't want to say it's 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 more personal because these guys like all these dudes you know we live with they're our brothers we fight beside them <clears throat> we're with them every day so um yeah i, I don't i, I really that yeah, it's, it's it's the feeling is i felt anger i felt immediate anger that's what i felt was there a sense by either one of you that with that anger to, to kind of even go out 
again and finish the job or get the guys who did it or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, when when we got hit in a certain area, um, we, we would definitely go and make sure that we would find the person's responsible and the person supporting them and then, you know, the network around them as well. Um, it, it was definitely went from tactical, go get a high-value target to, okay, like you wanted to play ball, like play stupid games, win stupid prizes. And we, we, we definitely did that for a, a lot of engagements when, when things like that happened. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just challenging because I think for both of us, you know, you know a guy in the hallway, you see him every day, having the chow hall, you know, you run a PT test next to him. And you just expect them to be there all the time. And then when they get hit, and then you realize that, you know, how many interactions or experiences you had with this person. Um, and then they're not going to be there anymore, which is very, very difficult. And then, or, and, or you see the guys who, who just get hurt and you see them, you know, get pulled off the bird into the operating room. And then, you know, they're, they're like on the operating table and they're like flushing stuff out of them. You're like, Holy crap, dude, that was close. Are you going to be okay? And then, are they going to be okay? Are they going to be able to walk? Like, is their leg going to work anymore? Are they going to have to take their leg off? Like, are they going to have to reconstruct this guy's face? And you start thinking about all those other things too, is, you know, Hey, the, the guys who had passed, like you're at an immediate loss and you, you start worrying about the guys who had gotten hit and are still there. And are they going to be able to recover? So it's just a lot of layers of a consideration um, after the fact that I don't think a lot of us got into it expecting to have those questions. Um, Lee, when you kind of go through that experience, does the unit ever be able to get back to normal again? Um, no. It hurts. Everybody deals with it their own way, but we still have a job to do. We still have a job yeah. to do, and and our our guys were were trained were trained good. Um. And they learn, they learn how to get through it. You know, that might not be the, the best way in the world to, to, to get something done. But, you know, when, when you're, when you're overseas and, and you're running missions, there's, there's no time out. I mean, it makes sense. Obviously you have to go forward with the mission. There's, there's certainly no debating that just everybody handles this situation differently. And, you know, guys, in, in, in the process of doing this podcast, I'm always, I ask that question a lot because I'm always, I'm always curious how people deal with it. I don't, I don't think there's a right answer for anyone. I don't think that there's a, a, a certain way you do with it. Some guys carry it. Some guys forget it. Some guys push it to the side until they get back home and open it back up again. And that's where they realize everything that they were feeling. Was there any of that for you guys? Yeah, every day. Every day I think, I, I just, I think about things that I could have done different that may have saved a life. Um, yeah, I mean, even, even, you know, I've been out of the army since 2005. There's still, you know, I, I, I'd say five to seven, if not seven out of seven days, I still think about it. Is that regret or just the, you know, kind of damn, I wish that I had done something different? Like, does it feel like regret? Is it a burden? It's a burden because a good person's gone. One of your brothers is dead. You know, it, it's not, it's not regret. I mean, it's, it's, you know, any, any smart person, like, unless you're a knuckle dragging idiot, which, you know, we, we were, you know, we're not right. We weren't, um, whenever something like that happens, you'll always replay it. You always wonder, um, even if it's once you'll always, you'll always wonder if there's something you can do that was different. 
then maybe would have saved a life. Um, if you, if you're not, if, if you don't have that, if, if as a person, if you don't have that, there's something really wrong with you, <laughs> especially if, if they're guys you're fighting next to. Was what Lee was part of the reason that you left the military, some of this stuff that, you know, losing too many guys and anything, or was it just time for you? No, absolutely not. I, I left the military because I was given, my wife gave an ultimatum. Um, I had a child that, that I had, we had our first child, um, in January of '04. And coming around to my last deployment, um, or coming around to, to, to my last, you know, my last year in the army and my last deployment, um, you know, after I got out of the army, I had only, I'd only seen him maybe, maybe, you know, 30 days out of that year. Oh my God. His whole first year of life. Um, and, and yeah, it was, I mean, he didn't know me. I mean, Griff, Griff, you know, my wife flew in and surprised us when we got back from, from that deployment. And, you know, he was only, I think I kept the journal and I wrote to him. And so I, I know how old he was when, when we were on that deployment. He was three months old and I used to write to him every day. And, um, yeah, he, my wife surprised me, showed up at the barracks when we got home, when we got back, um, from the deployment and my kid didn't want anything to do with me. Like she tried to, you know, give, give me him so I can hold him. He was screaming like, who the fuck is this guy? Get him away from me. Was, was, um, so did, that that. You, did that kill you? And, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, come on, that, that's my first son. Right. That's my first child. Just it doesn't matter if it's son. It's my first child. And when it came time to making a decision um, to re up or get out, and the wife, the wife pretty much said, "Hey, um, if you re up, I'm gone." And you know, I've been, I've been, uh, I've been with my wife. We, we, you know, we started dating in high school. So you know, <laughs> it's been. You know, since we've been together since 1994. Wow. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, you know, and, and when, you know, I joined the army at 25, so we're about 28, 29 when I was getting out. And, uh, yeah, that made it really, that, that was, that was something that was, that was just, it was really hard. Like there's things that I wanted to do and there's, there's, um, there was work that was, that I feel was, was left unfinished. And, you know, and, and when, when the boys deploy after I, when the boys deployed after I got out, I felt like, like I'm not there to help the boys. Um, you know, granted, like, you know, the, the guys, the guys that were, were there and working were, were more than capable, but there's just that inner, that inner feeling like, dude, my guy, my guys are downrange. Like my platoon's downrange when I work with and, and I'm not there to, to be the guy, you know? Gotcha. So Matt, how does your military career come to an end? Uh, my wife and I were both, you know, deployed. And so I did one more deployment to Afghanistan after Lee left. And then I did one to Iraq and the Iraq deployment was pretty tough for me. Uh, I just saw a lot of people get hurt. Um, you know, a lot of guys get injured, you know, just, just you know, everything that was bad about Iraq is uh, Mosul in 05 during the proliferation of IEDs and yep. vehicle borne IEDs and, just everything as, as it was going like really poorly. And, um, it just night after night executing, you know, we that was a, a really rowdy deployment on one day. We ran 13 missions. Uh, and it was, I mean, it was, it was a high adventure. It was, it was nonstop, but we were wrapping up a network, you know, we were catching top tier dudes over and over. And it's, you know, after a while we just realized you know, we're wrapping up street thugs, teenagers with handguns and, and, uh, hand grenades and, you know, they're given minimal training and we're, you know, rolling into these houses and they're hucking hand grenades downstairs at us. And, you know, is it really worth it touching these guys? Are we really making the dent that we need to? 
to help this nation. And yeah, I so saw like it was my fourth deployment, so I was a little bit more mature and I was able to ask these questions, like stepping back and looking at it, and specifically in the context of entering into nightly danger. And you know, coming back from that deployment, I just realized that you know it, it we could give back or solve these problems a different way. So my wife and I, um, we both decided to depart the military. Uh, we both transitioned out of our units and we decided, Hey, we want to, we want to serve our country in other ways, but you know, we have two young daughters now, one that, you know, I, I didn't see born, um, and barely knew and likely. And then I, my second one was just about to be born when I got back from Iraq and you know, I, I wanted to be a part of their lives. And so we just made the decision to jump in, in 2006. No, it makes a lot of sense. I do have one question though. How much did you miss Lee on those deployments? Um, <laughs> uh, performance-wise, I missed him a lot. Like dealing with his like his shenanigans and his practical jokes and his constant negative feedback, I was I was okay without that. Yeah. <laughs> Lee, get a retort. Nah, <laughs> All right, it is what it is. But let's let's move on. So now you're both free of your military obligation. Uh, how does combat flip flops get born? Um, you know, Lee and I both, you know, while in these deployments, there's a lot of downtime. We'd always talked about running businesses, and he was kind of in a. It wasn't kind of. He was in the e-com world and the dot-com world when it was it was really growing before he joined uh, the military. And you know, I've always really wanted to be an entrepreneur and a like the ideas of business, we talked about this idea of cafe racer building these delivery coffee, like kind of espresso carts that would a company would order coffee. And then like this person would literally drive the bike over and like make coffee right there and then walk them upstairs and the person could come down and get them. So that way, you know, it was a, just a really cool, like coffee mobile delivery business. So people wouldn't have to leave work to go get a, a nice coffee. And like, I mean, that was the first idea that we had. And he departed, went to LA and was working and I departed and took a job building houses and, we just always stayed in touch. And then, you know, a bunch of different jobs between both of us later, I ended up back in Afghanistan and uh, found this combat boot factory that needed some commercial work once the war ended and saw a flip-flop on a table with a combat boot sole on it and thought it was cool and said, hey, you know, this is a great online business. I bet you we could you know, make this thing work. You know, there's one guy I know that I can call and make this happen. So I walked out of the factory and I called Lee. I think it was like 2 o'clock in the morning in L.A. and said, hey, man, let's make flip-flops in Afghanistan. It's by the domain, combat com, and that was it. That's how it started. So, Lee, you're asleep at 2 a.m. You get a phone call from Griff. Is your first thought, is something wrong, or now you're thinking this guy's freaking crazy for calling me that late? Uh, I don't sleep. Oh, okay. I don't sleep. I don't sleep. So, uh, naturally, I was awake working, and, uh, no, it was one of those things. He, you know, he calls me up, and I'm like, all right, buddy, like Cafe Racer's still sitting there waiting to get lost. All right, I'll buy this domain. Hold on, let me get right on that. <laughs> so I did though. We we got it. Um, it was just it was it was funny though because you know I get the call. We do this stuff. He gets back stateside, and it's still a few months before we even did anything, right, Griff? What was it? Maybe like maybe like five or six months years. before we brought Andy in the fall to really start rolling. Yeah, because that was two thousand and nine, and then Andy and I went over the idea in November of 2010 um, on the way to his bachelor party in Montana. But we were about a half yeah. the rain years deep and started talking about it. And Andy is whom? Uh, Andy is my brother-in-law. So uh, he's the third co-founder of Combat Flip Flops. So he, our, my wife and his wife were sisters. 
so he's uh, we call him the Wookiee, but he's a six foot six Austrian dude who's now he was a professional painter, you know, kind of production commercial paint guy. And then he, you know, throughout the process of combat flip flops, he, you know, came in the week after I discussed the idea with him on the notepads, like talk to me about what, what you want to do. And then so I just started sketching out some ideas. Like well, this was the AK. I want to be brown and tan. I want the upper to be darker tan. I want you know, AK casings in the top. And you know, I want this kind of embossed logo and the heel. And I just kind of drew it down on paper. And two days later, the guy taught himself SketchUp. He's like, is this what you were thinking? And he brought like a digital rendering of the product. Like, yeah, that was it. He's like, well, I think I can make that. So who do we know? And uh, we just called Lee and Lee used to work for a shoe company and said, hey, can we call your guys and see if they can help us make footwear? And, and then we just, we started figuring it out, like how to make footwear. What do we need to do? Like, who do we need to talk to? Where do we get materials? How do we get tooling? And it's every time we ran into a roadblock, you know, Andy figured it out. And he's a, He's a GSD kind of guy. Get shit done. But the big thing about combat flip-flops is that you wanted them to be made in Afghanistan, correct? Correct. So the, there's a, a saying that's borders frequented by merchants seldom need soldiers. And in the process of you know returning to these conflict areas after the military, I found that I was safer as a civilian doing business than I ever was in body armor and carrying a rifle. Uh, entrepreneurs are the guys who are there who are, who are creating the local security. They're creating the local leaders. They're investing in education because that's what they need to run their businesses and be profitable. So everywhere I went, when we were doing business, we were safe. So there was, there was no apprehension. I'm sorry, Matt, but there was no apprehension about entering back into Afghanistan without a weapon, without body armor, without protection. You, you felt safer. Oh no, not the first time. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, the first time I was, I was, I was obviously nervous, right? It's like, what, what do you expect? I mean, I was in high alert going in, and then pretty soon you find yourself, you know, surrounded by people, and you you get to see things that you never saw in the military. You know, people are different to you when you don't have a gun on the table, or when you don't, you know, blow their gate off the hinges or their door off the hinges and zip cuff them in the middle of the night. It's it's weird that you get a really nice positive reaction when you're actually going to an area conversing with somebody, shaking their hand, giving them a hug, eating dinner, breaking bread, doing business, you get a much different reception. And I never experienced that in the military. And when I started doing it in business, I thought it was a very positive way for us to interact with these nations. So that's, uh, that was the mindset is say, Hey, let's go there and let's, let's interact on a business level, create positive relationship, and then grow, grow local leaders and entrepreneurs and business owners there. Because in the end, that's, what's going to create sustainable security. Lee, did you have to go back to Afghanistan as well? No, no, I didn't. Okay. <laughs> no desire to go back on as a civilian? No, no desire whatsoever. <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm bullshitting. I, I wouldn't mind going back. I just, um, maybe not now, maybe in the future I'll go back. I mean, we still, we still do business there. Um, you know, there might be a day in time where I'm like, okay, let's go. Let's, you know, let me go back. But um, not now. Right. I won't say never, but just not now. So you have this prototype made, and what's the next step for you guys? How do you mass produce these things? So the the trick is we just didn't even know if it was feasible, if people were going to like the idea. So we, we, there's no ability to make raw materials in Afghanistan or tooling. So we had to have all of our materials and tooling made in China to start to get through the prototype process. 
so we, you know, we, we got them down to what we thought would be cool. And then we created a Facebook page and we shared it out to some people and people were like, yeah, that looks really cool. I'd buy them. And so we sold, I think we sold my motorcycle and a, a boat and we bought 200 pairs of samples and we threw them in a duffel bag and we went to the shot show in Las Vegas and talked to bloggers and tactical folks in the industry who thought they would write about them to be cool. And then uh, went to the outdoor retailer show and talked to people in the outdoor industry about our products and Lee built a website in I think 48 hours in order to be able to take pre-orders. And we were selling product and we'd sold like thousands of pairs and then we just had prototypes and samples. So the trick was to, you know, to, to get the pre-order status, we get the cash in so that way we could pay for our first production run. So we, you know, we had, you know, significant amount of cash in the bank. We go to our manufacturer, Hey, let's order the materials. Uh, we told our factory in Afghanistan, we're going to have the materials to you in two months. You know, we need you to make them and then let us know when we can ship them out. And everything was going according to plan. And then Obama announced the end of the Afghan war in December, 2014. So all the contracts that were supporting our factories or covering the overhead in our factories got pulled. And so our factory went under. So the exact thing we were trying to prevent um, from that factory from going under after the government contracts ended, it happened right, right with us after dollars were on the table. Uh, there was a cross-border shooting between uh, U.S. forces and the Pakistan forces. So the, uh, the supply route from Karachi to Kabul got cut off. So we had to airlift our materials in. And it was just like debacle after debacle after debacle. So June delivery turned into July, turned into August. And eventually, Andy and I just got on a plane with some duffel bags and we flew to Kabul to go get our footwear. Wow. And uh, when we got there, um, you know, we, we got them. You know, we were super excited. We knew the factory was going to end. We were con still continuing to sell product. So we wanted to find another factory. So, you know, in the process, you know, we, we picked up the footwear. We dropped them off in our facility. Went to go look at other potential manufacturing options. And the next morning we get up, we start QAing all of our footwear. And it was a 100% failure rate. All of it was bad. Our, uh, our material supplier in the, in the rush to get the products over there because the, the factory was closing and the supply, like, the supply route being closed, we needed to put all of our stuff onto an airplane and we had some very tight timelines and windows to get to. And because of that shortened timeline, um, they, they pulled a bait and switch on materials for us. So we had thousands of pairs of beautiful, beautifully assembled footwear out of bad materials. So like what the, the, the flip-flop itself wouldn't stay together or the, the, the sole just wasn't holding up well. No, like the leather wasn't right or the, the chrome on the tuck tucks was um, the chrome on the tuck tucks was rusting already. The, the blue on the footbed leather, the Poseidons is bleeding into your feet. You know, oh. all of these different things. It was just the, the materials. We, we couldn't ship them to customers. It would have destroyed our reputation. So we just got on Facebook again. We put together an email to all of our customers. We said, hey, I'm really sorry. Here's the photos of what happened. You know, we'll, we'll get this fixed. We promise we'll get them to you. If you want a refund, we'll give it to you. And people responded to you guys are crazy. We love the story. Glad to be a part of this. Um, keep going. And so then we went out, we found a second factory down the road in Kabul, ordered 4,000 more pair of materials, uh, flew home. And, you know, that was September to October to November. And then on December 6th, uh, we got a call from our material factory saying, hey, your material's ready. You know, get it off our dock. We need to, We need room. Get this thing going. The very next call we got was from our second factory in Afghanistan saying they had just lost their boot contract and we needed a guarantee 
80,000 pairs of footwear. Otherwise, we, they wouldn't be able to manufacture for us. So we had to shut that factory down. Like we couldn't, we couldn't make 80,000 pair. And uh, so now we have a container full of flip-flop materials sitting in China, no factories and customers who have been waiting for now nearly a year for their product. So Lee, Andy, and I got on a phone call and Andy said, I saw him make them in Afghanistan. They didn't look too hard. Just ship them. So he shipped the container to my house and we built a gorilla flip-flop factory in my garage. <laughs> and between February to April of 2013, the whole team of family, friends, fellow veterans all came together and we manufactured thousands of pairs of flip-flops in my garage, delivering to customers. And, Pretty and, cool. It's a fun experience. And so the fail rate on those was zero. <laughs> they were all good. They were good. Yeah, we made them like the material was great. Quality was great. I mean, we had some issues, but the first time manufacturing footwear, I, mean, I think we, we did a stellar job <laughs> for a first time. go. Lee, you know, <laughs> uh, um, you know, Griff has just said you're 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 a GSD guy. You know, a get you know what uh, stuff done guy. And um, during this process, oh, Andy, you... Andy's a GSD. <laughs> that's Andy. Andy that gets it done. Oh, that's <laughs> right. I'm sorry, Andy was okay. I apologize. But I, I yeah, yeah Lee's the harass yeah, no to get shit done. <laughs> <laughs> but the question remains the same. You know, how frustrating was it? Disheartening? Were, were, did were you discouraged at any point in time during this whole thing? No, I was pretty fucking upset to be honest with you. <laughs> um, you know the, the 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 call where we where we decided to have this, the the raw material shipped to us. I was I was I was pretty heated because I can hear you know like like there's you know when Andy and Griff went on went to pick up our our stuff in Afghanistan. I mean I had to sit there with the guys on a call and just hear them. I mean it sounded like they got kicked in the balls. I mean it really did. I mean you know I'm talking to my two business partners that are thousands of miles away and they're just. I mean, they, they sound like they, they're ready to take their own lives because shit just went so bad, right? Um, and then going through this, you know, we started getting that same feeling when, when, that, when we got the call that the factory was going under. Um, yeah, I, 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 I kind of got angry, and it was good that we had everything shipped to us, and it's good that we figured it out. Um, and when we did it, um, that was probably the best, the best business decision that we ever made. And, and I'll say that because when we made that decision, what it, what it allowed our, our partner Andy to do was, was learn our process, learn the manufacturing process, learn what, learn how, how and what everything is made of, um, you know, down the glues and rubbers. He, he became that guy, that expert. And, and I know when we vetted out, it was, it's simple stuff. Like when we vetted out our new factory and they're like, Hey, it's going to take this long to make a shoe. He's like, bullshit. It'll take, you know, a quarter of that time. They're like, no, it's not. He's like, he's like, check this out. And he goes in there and he does it. And they're like, holy shit. Like, all right. You know, this guy knows what he's talking about. And, and from a, from a business point of view, like, just, you know, three entrepreneurs trying to figure out how to make, how to make footwear, you know, two army rangers and a bass player trying to figure out how to make fashion goods and footwear. Um, the fact that we were able to get in and learn our process, you know, from soup to nuts, that's, 
that's a very, very good thing. And a lot of entrepreneurs don't do that. A lot of entrepreneurs will rely on on delegating to to a third party to manufacture a product for them and not know their process and not know what's going on and and, and literally just land a finished product. So, you know, by, by doing that we actually got we actually got an education in our business. And I think that was the best decision we've ever made. Well, right now you're obviously not making flip-flops yeah, out of Griff's garage. So wh- where are the flip-flops being made? What would happen next? So uh, it's funny. So uh, in the process of whole, like getting to manufacture our flip-flops, we realized that it's an untenable solution continuing to produce them behind my house. Um, <laughs> so we went to a trade show and we, we were looking for just other materials and suppliers. I and mean, they organized them by country and go, oh, Columbia. Columbia is kind of dicey. You know, we've been having the war on drugs there for – you know, the past 30 or 40 years, we're spending lots of money in the country. you are trying to figure that out. And so we went over to the Columbia section and we walked into this booth and there was the most beautiful footwear we'd ever seen. Um, you know, everybody there was super nice. Uh, they threw out the leathers. They were beautiful quality. And then they flipped it over on the back and to the penny, it was what we would have to pay in China for leather at 20,000 units. And we could get it at 200 units. And so immediately there was like an instant business connection. And then the guy says, oh, we have a free trade agreement with the U.S. And so there was like that added extra value. So shorter shipping time, same or lower prices and a free trade agreement. These are all just amazing things that, that were enabled us to do business. And then we looked at our mission statement and there's nothing in our mission statement that specifically says Afghanistan. It says manufacture peace through trade, help, you know, help entrepreneurs affected by conflict and you know, Columbia met our criteria for that. And so we built a great relationship with a manufacturer down there. We started in 2013 with, I think, $15,000 in business. And this year we're going to do probably over a half toward a three-quarters million dollars in business with a guy. Wow. Um, just, you know, just, just doing footwear. And, you know, he just rebuilt his whole factory. I mean, they put mezzanines in. They're hiring families. It's really amazing to see our entire you know, our entire line just fill their facilities and how many people it's putting to work on a daily basis. And the, the coolest part about it is, is like every pair that we sell out of Columbia puts a girl in school in Afghanistan. And we tell the factory workers there that story, that they're helping little girls in Afghanistan go to school. And it's, it's really surreal and visceral, and they become immediately proud of what they're doing. The quality of work is there, and they know they're helping somebody else that needs help too. And it's just from start to finish, they've just been an amazing partner. So let me ask a devil's advocate question here. You guys, the three of you are red-blooded Americans. Two of you served your country. Why would you take your business overseas and not make it in America? I'll, I'll answer that. Like, you won't buy the product that we make in America. It's too expensive. When, when we tried, when we had to ship our container to our house uh, to manufacture, I tried everything possible to not have to manufacture them on our own. I called every shop that I could possibly find in the continental United States that would receive our materials, assemble them, package them, and ship them. And it cost, just for that process alone, not including the materials, it cost more for the labeler and the packaging by 20 to 30% in 2013 than what we manufacture them for and delivered right now. So a product made in America for our AK flip-flop would probably be a 90 to $120 product versus our competitor. And they sell the same product for 50. And as much as you would like to think that, and, and like, I, I love buying products made in America and I wish more product people made products in America, but 
the fact is, is Americans won't buy products made in America if the price difference is that much. It, you'll run yourself out of business trying to do it. I mean, I mean so what Griff said about the price point, you guys, you guys wouldn't buy them at seventy. Right. We had them at seventy. We we sold we sold a premium a premium leather flop for seventy dollars, and nobody would buy them. So it's it's you know everybody everybody. You know, that's to be honest, that's one of the bigger questions we have so, um, through social media. Why are you manufacturing in America? Why are you manufacturing in America? And everybody, you know, and everybody's saying all this, you know, they're, they're posting these comments on their on their Chinese-made phones or Chinese-made tablets or Chinese-made laptops. <laughs> Why are you manufacturing in America? Why aren't you manufacturing in America? And then the, that's the response. We did. You guys didn't want to buy them. They were too expensive. I'm not a businessman, so I don't have the acumen for this that you guys do. Um, but you know, I, I understand you know c- cost and benefit analysis of this whole thing. And plainly, when you say it, it makes sense to do it overseas. But the added thing I think for you guys is that philanthropic angle, not only in Colombia but also what you're doing for people in Afghanistan. And when you put all that together in, in the bowl, you get you get something nice. You know, it, it works out well. Well, yeah, and so so just just so you know, those aren't those aren't the only those aren't the only two only you know two places we're changing things we do deal with we do you know we do work with with uh, we do manufacture some products in the united states and we do work with some charitable some charitable um um some char- uh, some charitable foundations in the united states that are veteran based so a lot of a lot of people read a headline on an ad and not know what the fuck they're talking about and start going on a tirade about fuck you for not helping americans fuck you for your veterans and you're fucking your own veterans over why aren't you doing this, this, and this for veterans. And, and our answer is like, hey, man, why don't you take two seconds and just read what we do? Right. Two seconds is all it takes. You go into our charities page and you'll see that, you know, we support Team 5 Foundation. We support the Station Foundation. We work with, you know, we, we do manufacture products in the United States. And, 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 I'll, be, and, and I'll be quite honest, again, those, the products that we're manufacturing here are good quality products and the, the the price range is, is, is pretty high, but we said we are going to do this. So we are pretty diverse in where we manufacture. I mean, on top of that, we manufacture in Laos. We have on-demand printing from the United States with our shirts. Um, you know, we employ, we employ local, local vendors, you know, um, Ithaca local vendors. So we did for a long time with shirts, um, you know, sticker, just all the, everything we can do here, we do here. Everybody we can help here, we help here. Um, it's just, you know, we have some other stuff that 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 we that benefit people overseas, and we have reasons for doing it. Uh, listen, when when you explain yeah, it, I think it people makes need a lot to get over the idea. I think people, yeah, I think people need to get over the the idea of Americans actually manufacturing products. We don't even educate our kids today to manufacture products. So people are complaining about a lack of a manufacturing base in America. Well, we're not even training our kids, you know, to to work in that environment. It's it's tough to do, but what, but what I my response is, hey, like I do hire Americans. I have a customer service lady. Her name's Jill. You know the guys over at Minuteman Press, Keith, Insurance, Kevin. You know are seven degrees, or you know like all, there's like seven degrees of separation, or like all the other stuff that we do that's in America. We create jobs that just they're not manufacturing based, and I think people just have this romantic idea of a craftsman, you know, making stuff in a garage, and that's where the jobs are at, but you know, we're America. We come up with the next best thing, the next greatest idea. 
right? And then we're, we're supported in the evolution of that idea. And it's just how it works. Like people just aren't making things in America the way they used to anymore. And we need to really make sure that, you know, we're educating our kids, our consumers, anything else. But that's okay because of where we're going as a nation and how we're still being leaders and we're creating jobs in other sectors. Speaking of the next great idea, you guys ended up on Shark Tank. For those who don't know, uh, you guys were on Shark Tank. Tell us about that experience and what was the end resolution for you guys? We killed it. (laughs) (laughs) It was was fun. Uh, I think the stats are is uh, 55,000 American businesses apply every year. They down select the 200, they film 170, they air 150. Uh, out of those of the air, about half of them get deals on air, which is about 75. And about half of those that get deals on air close through due diligence. It's about 35 to 36 companies a year actually get full investment and partnerships with the Sharks out of 55, 60,000 American small businesses that apply. Um, and the craziest part is, is we didn't even apply. Really? They invited us. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and so they'd heard about us through one of our great PR hits through an article written by Wes Tyler, Gizmodo. Um, Now he's outside, but he wrote this crushing article on it, so one of the producers read it, invited us down, and, you know, I I don't watch TV, so I I get this call a Tuesday in the evening, like, hey, some producer from Shark Tank invited us on the show. I don't know. I don't don't think I want to be on the show. It's kind of like American Idol. They destroy small businesses. And Lee says, are you crazy? Are you high? Are you high? (laughs) What's the matter with you? (laughs) Is like, this is a chance for us to get in front of 11 million people. Like, this is this is our chance. Let's go. Let's do it. And then I realized that he was right. He was definitely right. And so we, we called the Say that again. Say that again. And, I, I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> Say that again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you were right, Lee. <laughs> um, and, you know, we called the producers back to dad and, like, sent us the packet. And so I, I probably had about a six-pack of beer. And they... You can just tell, like, they have this form. It's, it's got, like, six or seven responses, like, lines open for responses per, per question. And I might have made it to the end of the second end of the second line for one question, maybe. But, I mean, it was literally just, like, really short, blunt answers to all the questions. And I sent the packet to him. And he's like, this is great. I love it. Can you guys put together a trailer video? Oh, no, screw it. I'll just put one together. And they said they pitched it in front of the, the decision board. And they said they had a two-minute video and they didn't even make it through 30 seconds. And I'm like, yeah, invite those guys down. And for weeks, I mean, we we pretty much abandoned everything else we were doing as a company and solely focused on training for this event. And we got the measurements to the room. We knew the timing. We watched all the episodes. We patterned the sharks. We we strategized, wargamed, rehearsed, timed everything out. I mean, we were rehearsing like we were doing a hit because it, it, was, it was essentially a raid, a ranger raid. And we did it, right? It was fun. So so who bought into it? Uh, on air, Cuban, Damon John, and Lori Grenier. And it went in for 100000 each at 10% of our company. So we had a million-dollar valuation. Um going on the show which is pretty crazy a couple guys that have a crazy idea in a combat boot factory in afghanistan and a couple of years later it's now worth a million bucks i think it's pretty rad it's fun and then uh through due diligence uh, we decided to partner with mark cuban and so he's on as a partner in our company and we've been jamming forward ever since so it's been a spectacular relationship and the doors that have opened and the mentorship we've gotten has been phenomenal that's outstanding it's just an amazing story gentlemen i mean 
you know, the guy who still wears a uniform, proud of what you've done, uh, you know, in wearing the uniform as well. But certainly there's nothing more gratifying for us on this podcast to hear veterans who are doing great things and continuing to represent other veterans. And, and it gives a lot of hope to a lot of guys out there that, hey, you know, they, we can still do other things other than put on a uniform and go travel to faraway places and things of that nature. So, you know, major props to you guys. But you know, uh, go ahead. You know, let me let me say this, right? Um, there was there was quite a few times in the in, in, in the short history of our company where where things were very dire. I, I think I, I think that would be that would be the correct word to use. That were very dire, and it was always the veterans that supported us. It was always the guys. It was always the boys that that supported what we did. And and I don't you. You know, Griff always says we would. It, would, it, would you always think it was a fortuitous series of events, or what, what is, what's the term you use? But a uh, um, uh, serendipitous series of events—that's the term yeah. Griff always uses. And and it was that's what it's been the whole way. I mean, when everybody, everybody, you know, other than the boys, we've heard you're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna make it. This isn't gonna work. This isn't gonna work. We've heard that so many times, and. And we've been we've been at very low points, and it's in and and we've been we've been at points where it's like fuck is this is is this really going to work like uh, like you know to the point where I don't want to say we're doubting ourselves but like things just aren't looking very good, and one one way shape or form the boys will come through and 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 some guys will come through and buy some product and and we'll have a little bump that month and and we'll get through it. Same thing. A couple months later, we might be we might be hurting, but you know, a veteran a veteran owned boutique would buy would place an OEM order, or or or, 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 or you know, or place a, a wholesale order to, to sell. And we've been through we've been through so many of those those low points where where the veteran community has actually helped us. I mean, they got us through everything. You know, the, uh, they they kept us alive. They kept us alive long enough to 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 get in front of those eleven million people, and, and that's something we'll never forget. Like we always say that, you know, Griff. I'm out every day. I'm like Griff. Like we need to open up an initiative where we have, you know, you know, strictly veterans doing this. You know, we're we're figuring it out. There's things that we're working on, but um, you know, I just wanted to say that it's been the veteran community that that got us where we are. Well, listen, without the veteran community, we would have we would we would we wouldn't be where we are. It's perfectly I mean, said. Even we probably wouldn't even be around. I mean, it just, you know, it puts a perfect cap on this thing because uh, I think that's part of the reason we do this podcast is for that same reason, you know, just to keep us all together, keep us all connected. And and I think that uh, when we do that, you know, we're all stronger for it. Um, I know that, you know, you guys obviously have a business to run, but um, what can listeners of this podcast, when they go to combat flip-flops, what, what can they do? Yeah. Obviously, they can uh, buy some product at <laughs> the cart check out. And then fortunately, we have a 20% off coupon, Hazard20. So you can get 20% off your uh, your first purchase if you use Hazard20 coupon code, and it expires 4th of July. So Beautiful. All there right. you go. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the Flopperators right now. Great product. Um, and then uh, we have the, our mantra patches that, that go on the uh, on the Flopperators as well, so you can deck them out. We have a... Flow is smooth, smooth is fast patches, American flag patches. We got a whole bunch of variety of them, so they're they're pretty rad. So you can change up your flip flops for your style. Again, the code hazard two zero to also, July fourth. Uh, it will get you twenty percent off. Go ahead, Lee. Also, if you guys have a chance, uh, if you want to support some of our our veteran based charities, 
um, visit Team 5 Foundation or um, the Station Foundation website. Uh, you can find the links on our in our charity section. Matt Griffin, Donald Lee, CombatFitFlops.com. Thank you guys so much for being part of the Hazard Ground podcast. We appreciate it. Keep kicking some ass, man, and uh, you know, let's let's stay in touch down the line and, and love what you guys are doing. We appreciate the time. Thanks, brother. Thanks. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.